Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. That's the problem with our society as a whole, is that when mistakes get made, it's always a cover-up because, oh, that we don't want to have to pay, we don't want to be responsible. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Um, Yvonne, have you recovered from the debate last night? I couldn't do it, Steve. I couldn't watch it. I decided <laughs> I, to watch it through the filter of social media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hear what everybody else has to say about it. And, and I'm trying to keep this non-political because I know we've had a few listeners who didn't like it when we get into politics. So, uh, But I think we can... Uh, say that it was just a complete mess. I mean, it was, uh, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. I saw some, I saw some posts about um, sympathy for kindergarten teachers and, and basically uh, kindergarten teachers, kindergarten teachers may be uh, having more control and running a tighter ship uh, than what happened last night. But again, I didn't watch it. I just yes. watched what other people said about it. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, that's always the best way to do it. Why watch it yourself? Uh, I just, I, I, there's only so much I can take during these unprecedented times, Steve. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, um, enough talk about that. Uh, let's go ahead and welcome our guest today. We have a fantastic lawyer from Las Vegas, Nevada. His name is Sean uh, Claggett. Sean, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, well, Sean, uh, it's really great to talk to you, and uh, we're going to get into this case that uh, that uh, you sent us that we're going to we're going to talk about, which is fascinating. But before we got on the air, we talked a little bit, Sean, about the fact that you're set for trial in 28 days um, down. I think was it in New Mexico? Is that where it is? Yep, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And um, and I thought that would be good to talk about on the podcast because. Um, you know, in, in, where we are, you know, we we practice around the southeast, but uh, mostly in Georgia, uh, there's still really no trials going forward. Um, you know, hearings by Zoom, depositions by Zoom, stuff like that, but no uh, no trials. So I, I just wanted to hear from you. What uh, what's the setup as far as how they're going to do this trial? Um, well, let me. Uh, I've got my notifications binging in the background. Uh, so this, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, so they've taken a jury services room and converted it into a courtroom, but we're actually venued in a in a t- place called Tierra Amarillo, which is a very small town. No no restaurants, no hotels, and the court the judge who's hearing this trial actually sits in Santa Fe, and so we're going to be picking a jury in Tierra Amarillo. Uh, on Monday, the 26th, and then going down to Santa Fe to do the trial for the next nine days. And so it, it is a unique, we only get 14 jurors per panel when we're picking the jury. Um, that's all we can have in this tiny little courtroom that we can properly socially distance. The number of lawyers are limited. Um, we have face masks, obviously. So, I mean, it, it, it's challenging, but the great thing is, is that we, we press on and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get a, we'll, we'll get a great jury and we'll put this trial on. And, and as far as how, how the jury will be sitting during trial, are they going to be distanced? I mean, how are they sitting in, in the, in the box, in the jury box? So for the actual trial, the jury will be sitting behind us. It's really strange. 
So we've been, we have a courtroom, a pretty large courtroom in our office that we do for focus groups. So we've been practicing what that looks and feels like for the last month with mock trials so that we're getting used to the feel and, and not just of where the jury's sitting, but how do you behave when the jury's watching you the whole time? Because okay. literally you're between the, the jury and the witness. So right. everything you do, if you, if, you, if, if you don't have a poker face and you start behaving emotionally, which some people have a hard time controlling, right? it's going to be irritating and distracting for the jury. And so yeah. we've been, we've been working really hard on our end to um, be better at that. The other thing that we've figured out is that face masks really matter. Um, yeah. It impacts the response to you as a, as an advocate and it makes it harder to read the jurors and the yes. witnesses. So what we've done and we're working with the court right now is that we've been trying different uh, hearing and impaired masks, which basically are clear in the center and cloth around the outside so that the listener can see your facial expressions. Um, the court still has to approve it, but assuming they do, we've ordered hundreds of these masks for the jurors, the court personnel uh, and counsel. Now, I don't know if defense counsel wants to wear it or not. They may not, but we certainly will be wearing ours so that we, uh, the jury can connect better with us. Because I think from our focus groups, it matters. No, I absolutely agree. And, and um, I recently heard uh, Lisa Blue talk about picking a jury uh, during uh, the pandemic. And she was commenting on how hard it was to kind of read facial expressions and, uh, you know, when she was selecting the jury and really, you know, even though not everybody might, uh, might not be answering your questions, you can still kind of get a, a sense of how people feel just by seeing their face. Yeah. And, and typically when we do jury selection, there's a real connection. Um, we've, we've gotten pretty good at doing that process and we were surprised by some of the responses we got that we weren't engaging. Right. And it's just, it's just because they can't see your face. They yeah. don't know that you're truly listening to them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it makes it different. So hopefully we'll see. Uh, I think it will make a difference. But, you know, the reality is you can't stop doing trials. I mean, no. <laughs> we, we feel lucky that we're having the opportunity to put this case on. That we're going to try. And, and I, I, I hope to on November 6th or 7th, probably November 7th or the 9th, whatever that Monday is, there'll be a big story in national news. I guess we'll all hear about the, the verdict. Okay. <laughs> Happens to coincide with something else that's going to be happening in the national news. But well, that'll be on the 8th. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You'll beat but, uh, I've got a great idea, by the way, for the next debate. <laughs> okay. Boxing gloves? <laughs> yeah, no. Like, first of all, I, I agree, regardless of your politics, it was embarrassing. Yeah. What they did. And can you imagine the sanctions as lawyers we would have if we engaged ourselves like that in front of the judge? They're right. Uh, but these are the leaders of the free world, uh, you know, the most powerful country, what, maybe not anymore, but what used to be the most powerful country in the world um, behaved like on the national stage. So I say next time you put them in separate rooms and you tell them you got 60 seconds and we're going to shut your mic off. So yeah, we, yeah. I actually want to hear each other what you have to say. And so you just preset it and then don't allow the nonsense. Cause I actually really like Chris Wallace. I think he's a, if there was one guy out there who I thought could possibly control him, it would be Chris Wallace. I right. totally agree. And they just dumped all over him. And 
you know, regardless of whether you're a Republican, I don't even know what the parties mean anymore these days. (laughs) I'll tell you what's interesting when it comes to our trials, we don't even bother. That information is irrelevant because what is a Republican? What is a Democrat? We're more concerned with authoritarian versus Mm non-authoritarian. For those of those listeners that are interested, of course, authoritarians would be much more likely to side with Donald Trump than non-authoritarian. Right, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And my, my wife was saying, as we were watching last night, is she is she wished it could be on Zoom because then you could mute their mics, you know, and, and have them go one at a time. Right. Um, you know, and that would have been uh, and, and, you know, and it's really no reason why they shouldn't do it like that. I mean, they're, they don't shake hands. They don't, you know, come close to each other. Um, there's barely any audience. So, well, and Sean, as you brought up, I mean, we're in contentious situations all the time as part of our jobs and we are all able to take the time that's given to us by a judge. And for the most part, not talk over each other and certainly not talk over the judge. So it's not that hard to do. (laughs) Right. Exactly. If we behave that way, we would get poured out in every trial. Oh yeah. Yeah. The jury would hate us. Absolutely. We'd be probably in jail because the judge would sanction us. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, 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 Sean, let me get let's let's get uh, talking about this case. But first, I want to introduce you so I so all of our listeners know uh, who exactly we're uh, speaking to. So as I mentioned, it's uh, Sean Claggett. Uh, he is a uh, founding partner of Claggett and Sykes in Las Vegas, Nevada, and you can look uh, him up at ClaggettLaw.com. That's C L A G G. E-T-T, law.com and uh and sean has uh won a number of awards especially for uh i mean i don't want to say you're a young attorney sean but you're uh you're on the younger side i would say uh, so and you you've won a lot of really impressive awards for somebody who started practice in 2003 uh so 17 years uh, you've been in practice uh but uh in 2017 it was named by the nevada justice association as trial attorney of the year in 2016 and in 2018 had had verdicts that were named as the fourth most influential verdicts by uh, Courtroom View Network. The first case in 2016 involved a slip and fall at a Lowe's that resulted in a traumatic brain injury. And then the uh, case in 2018 involved a, a case against a homeowners association for a swing set. Uh, and then in 2019, uh, got honorable mention for most impressive trials for actually the case that we're going to be talking about here, uh, the Solace case. Uh, and then in 2020 was named by CVN on the uh, who we're watching list. Uh, and not only that, but is a uh, well graduated both undergrad and law school from UNLV and is now an adjunct professor at UNLV uh, at the law school and has been uh Uh, named as one of the top trial attorneys in Nevada and uh, is involved in a a number of uh, different uh, impressive charities. And I noticed that you uh, uh, coach baseball and, um, and have uh, a wife and two, two children. So uh, um, tons of free time as, as somebody who coached uh, girls soccer for a long time, I know how, uh, how, how that can be, uh, how involved it can be and how, how hard it can be. And I only got thrown out of one game just before (laughs) that you're going to ask. I, 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 too, as a coach, have been thrown out of one game. <laughs> right, uh, yeah. and it was the umpire's fault. <laughs> right. That's that's my story, too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, listen, the guys who get thrown out all the time, it's their fault. The guys right. who coach for 20 years and get thrown out of one, probably the umpire. 
But right. <laughs> uh, I still play. I still play adult league, hard base, hard you know, wood bat baseball. Have championship game on Sunday. Nice, nice. I actually played for one year and it really just got, it, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I, I just, it was really a, a timing thing. I, I ended up having to miss a lot of games because of trials or whatever. Uh, but no, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I played in the over 35 league, so I don't know how they, they split it up at your league, but there's under 35 and then there's over 35. Yeah, we're, we, we, we now are in the over 35 age. Our average age is 55 on the team, 50 to 55. Yeah. Every guy played college or pro, so it's... Everybody nice. knows how to play the game, which makes it fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that is impressive. Um, well, uh, well, Sean, let's talk a little bit about this case. So I'm going to give a brief rundown of the facts, and if I've screwed it up, just let me know. Sure. Um, the name of the case is um, – oh, now I just forgot. Is it, it, Tell me how you pronounce her first name. Is it Eliza? Uh, Alyssa Solace. Alyssa. <laughs> I screwed it up. I knew it. <laughs> Alyssa Solace and, and Edgar Solace versus uh, Summerlin Hospital and Medical Center. It was tried in uh, September of 2019 in Clark County, Nevada. Uh, that's the uh, county for Las Vegas. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Okay. So um, Alyssa was, um, ha- had a pacemaker uh, and uh, it had had some had some pre-existing conditions and that became a, a pretty contentious fight during the trial uh but basically she was going in for what was supposed to be a, a pretty routine procedure where they were going to um, replace her pacemaker and essentially it sounded like they were basically charging up the batteries uh and it would take about 45 minutes i think they told edgar go get some lunch or something come back and she'll be ready to go for you um and so she she goes in. This is July 8 of 2016. And um, while she's in there, you've got an anesthesiologist, you've got a cardiologist. The cardiologist is actually doing the procedure. You got two nurses and then a couple of techs. Uh, and it sounded like maybe even uh, 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 somebody from the medical device company was in the room as well. Yep. Um, and so uh, basically, from the way I understand it, Sean, is that... Uh, as they're doing this procedure, one of the things that needs to be done once you replace the pacemaker is you basically got to see that the uh, uh, pacemaker works. So you test it. And the way you test it is by basically getting the heart out of rhythm and then let the defibrillator uh, shock it back into rhythm. Right. Um, and, and then from what I could tell, it sounded like that uh, she was given a dose of propofol. Uh, which if anybody remembers the Michael Jackson case, propofol is what he would take routinely to go to sleep and uh, ended up uh, resulting in his death. And it's a very strong drug. I've uh, I've taken it once, Yvonne, and I, the thing I remember about it was is that it felt like I had gone to sleep and then immediately they were waking me back up and it was like an, uh, 40 minutes later. And I, I couldn't tell as far as time went, uh, you know, anything had passed. It just felt like somebody was waking me back up. That's how strong this drug is. Yeah. And I think it's important just as a quick timeout to, to, to bring up that at some point, either you were probably going to be administered this drug or somebody in your family is going to be administered this drug. It's powerful, but also pretty common for these procedures um, and other colonoscopy, other things that you're going to have at some point, which is one of the things that makes us so scary, but Continue, Steve. Yeah. So real quick, a fun fact yeah. about the propofol is that the, the defendants filed a motion to eliminate that was going to preclude me from saying Michael Jackson. <laughs> it, 
they didn't want me to bring up the relationship. Well, in my focus groups, I knew that everybody, as soon as the word pro football comes up, it is Michael Jackson. Right. It's the first thing you think. And, and so I just, to screw with the defense in Vordire, I said, hey, so when I say propofol, what do you guys think about? Michael Jackson, first word. <laughs> first answer. It was like just this perfect moment. I just looked at the defense. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, why, I didn't why, say why? it. <laughs> I'm like, why Michael Jackson? <laughs> who, who is that? Yeah, but you didn't need to say it. I didn't say it. No, the jury, the jury did it. So um, well, so it, it, it and I, um, so, Sean, I, what I could tell is that she was given a 50 milligram dose of propofol, which I, it sounded like the contention was that that was too much for her, that she might she weighed about 110 pounds and 50 milligram dose of propofol is more appropriate for somebody who's 110 kilograms, which would be closer to 200 pounds, I think. Right. Or is yeah. That- so, yeah. So he messed up. He just he just gave the wrong dose. Okay. Um, yeah. And it, that's kind of starting the cascading of problems. In this right. Right. And then so so basically uh, around 1244, I'll run through the times because there was a lot of talk in the opening statements of both sides about the times. But around 1244, uh, her blood pressure starts to drop pretty dramatically. Her oxygen saturation starts to go down. And so then basically you... Um, have the medical team, the anesthesiologist was uh, in another room. And then I think he made a comment of like uh, something, something to the effect of, I guess she didn't like the propofol. Uh, and then he starts uh, giving her fluids, uh, gives her um, uh, ephedrine and, um, and they're not able to recover her. And then it sounds like around 1250, um, her, uh, she goes into code, goes into a code blue situation where her heart stops. And then that, that's where that's where the real, I, I, I think, fight starts is that it, it from your side of the case and what you were telling and what you explained to the jury is that basically they waited about four minutes before they started to do any type of compressions, even though that her heart had stopped. And it was really only because the cardiologist at the time who was basically sewing her back up, because when you get into a situation like this and we'll talk about it because it was part of the defense, um, the surgeon usually is in charge of the surgery. The anesthesiologist is in charge of maintaining the patient, maintaining the vital signs. If there's a resuscitation effort, it's the anesthesiologist's job plus the medical team. Uh, but but basically, the cardiologist says, you know, has anybody checked for a pulse? Uh, and then he starts doing compressions. Um, and it's not until about 1259 that they are able to get a pulse back. Um, so about, about nine minutes of, of no heartbeat and, uh, probably another five minutes before that, where the blood pressure had dropped to a point where there wasn't getting enough oxygen to her brain. So, uh, Alyssa uh, lived, uh, but unfortunately was profoundly, uh, brain injured, um, from a, a, an anoxic brain injury. Uh, and you described her as having the cognitive uh, function of a five-year-old and the uh, bladder and bowel control of a two-year-old. Um, and so she, so she was profoundly brain damaged uh, as a result of this. And then I'll just say this case settled um, uh, before a verdict came out. So they, they, um, Sean tried the entire case, closed the case. Uh, and had asked the jury to award 63 million plus some punitive damages. And while the uh, settlement is confidential, it, it settled. It, uh, I think Sean would say 
he and his clients were very happy with the settlement. And and you did talk to the jury afterwards. We did, yeah. They, they heard they, what they were going to award. Yeah, the jury was going to come back at 150 million, and um, we were still very happy with the result that we got. Right. Right. So. And, and, and just to be clear, they were going to come back with 50 million in compensatories and basically 100 million in punitive damages. Correct. Um, so that, that uh, I think, is a very basic overview of the case. Did I, did I miss any of the, uh, the main facts, Sean? No, I think that that, that covers it pretty well. Um, the general facts of the case. Yeah. Well, you know, um, where I wanted to start on this case, and I should just say from reading both uh, the openings of both sides, um, it, pretty much every issue in this case was fought about. I mean, it, it, you know, a lot of times when you've got a catastrophic injury, you know, uh, Yvonne, you know, this in some of the cases we have, you, you know, the defense won't really contest the injury. They'll say, yeah, we're very sorry. This is a terrible injury, but it's not our fault and fight you on liability. This case, not only did they fight you on liability, not only did they, you know, fight you on what exactly was happening in the room, what the medical records said, but they fought you on whether, first of all, they were, seemed to be taking a position that she didn't have a brain injury. And then if yeah. she did have a brain injury, it wasn't caused by them. It's kind of what they seemed like what they were saying. That is what they did. I mean, <laughs> th- what was clear after the opening, this is interesting, is because my wife, I've been married to my wife for a long time. We've been together since we were 16. She doesn't like watching my trials. It makes her too nervous, right? Um, but she watched this one. My wife's Filipino. These, this family was Filipino, and she just there was a real connection, and she got to know them pretty well. And so she was really pulling for the plaintiffs. Well, I, I give the opening statement, and I'm like, and I listen to the defendants, and I'm like, oh, we're killing them. And I go home, and I'm like, what do you think of the openings? And she's like, you're losing. Oh. And I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, can I say that on your podcast? Yes. Yeah, yeah, she so, can. <laughs> so I was just like, oh my God. And she and and the point being is that if what they're saying is true, because if when you looked at the openings as you did, somebody's lying. Right. Both but these stories, if you heard them told to you, they were not the same case. There was somebody was telling the truth, somebody was lying. And you know. We, we, in every trial we do, we're very, very careful. If we're going to tell the jury something, we have a document and a witness yeah. to back it up. If we don't have those two things, or if we don't at least have one of them, ideally two of them, we don't want to tell the jury that. we got to tell the story somehow a little bit different. But we, we need to maintain our credibility. And I, I tell attorneys that, as plaintiff attorneys, we only have one chip. Mm-hmm. And when we walk in there, we put it on the table. I say the defense has two chips or three chips. They can lie a couple times and they've got another hand, you know, they got another chip in the game uh, and it doesn't necessarily like wipe them out. We only have one chip. If we as plaintiffs who are going there to ask for money, lie to them, we're done. Yeah, that's we, right. One time and you're done. So your credibility is all you have. Um, in this particular case, we, we had a closing argument. We had created some really cool uh, criminal scene type dot, like, boards that we had yarn going and it was a really cool idea and after their opening we changed the entire closing and and we said look we went back to the offices how many times did they lie in their opening and i think it was like 18 or 20 like not little lies these are like big big lies and 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 one of the things they lied about was like the most critical thing which was weird because the cardiologist in this case 
had testified in his deposition and, and was consistent that we screwed up. I looked up from the procedure, she was coded. I asked if anybody checked from a pulse, nobody responded. And I looked at the uh, EKG strips afterwards and was able to tell that there was like an eight minute gap between the time that CPR should have started when it did. And they told the jury that this guy, this doctor was gonna come in and tell them that in fact, you couldn't tell by looking at the EKG strips when compression started. And I was like, that's just, it, it was the weirdest thing. Um, you know, we, we it, it was it was a very strange trial from that standpoint. You're right; they fought us on everything. If I would have said, you know what, uh, the sky's blue, they'd have been like, nope, it's red. I mean, it was just one of those. <laughs> right. And and as as you, I'm sure you all have been in these situations. They're gaslighting you. It almost yeah. makes you think you're crazy because you're like, am I? What the hell is going on? Because like I'm looking at it, right? Am I crazy? And you start questioning yourself. And it, and I, it happened in this case that I literally started questioning myself. Like, I think I'm going crazy because nobody could have this much courage to lie this much. Right. In trial. Yeah. But right. Did. Right. When it gets that extreme or that, that it seems so obviously sort of refuted by the evidence that you do. I think it's natural to start like rereading things and be like, what am I, am I missing something? Is it me? Because when it gets to that point, and as Steve pointed out, I mean, even in just the opening, which we had the transcript for, I mean, they're, they're attacking everything, including some stuff that I had not really um, seen before, especially when it came to the extent of their, of, of what, whether she had a brain injury, I guess. And I, I'm, right. I'm interested to, to hear what your wife's reaction was to that because reading it, it seemed very risky to, to, to go there. It was, um, my wife knew the plaintiff. And so this, you know, the, the brain injury was so profound that she doesn't know what's going on, right? I mean, you could tell her, I'm going to give you a shiny penny or I'm gonna give you a billion dollars, what would you like? And she wouldn't know the difference, right? There's no, there's there's just too much damage there. And so um, I have my co-counsel on this trial here. Hopefully they brought me Sorry. food. <laughs> okay, good, all right. So, 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 sorry. Um, so she ultimately, my wife sees this and she goes, I don't understand what, how are they claiming she doesn't have a brain injury? This is really strange. And so, hold on one second. Hey, Jim, would you, I'm on a podcast. Would you close that? <laughs> We're leaving all this in, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, perfect. I, I, I figure that it all gets left in. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the the issue that occurred that was uh, uh, strange there is that our client, like, leaves the cath lab on life support and is in a coma. And, uh, and uh, she's in a coma and they're questioning whether she ever sustained a brain injury. And then, and then they hired these experts that were really, I would not have hired these experts, um, but they hired experts to basically come in and, and give opinions that they were not qualified to give and I think that prop. Well, I know for a fact that that led to the jury wanting to give more money. Right. Was just this building up of 
you know, and we just kept every single lie they told, you know, and then the closing was really fun because the closing turned into a PowerPoint called someone in a hospital's puzzle of lies. <laughs> and so we literally made digitally a puzzle and each piece we would move and it would show another lie. So it'd be the lie. And then underneath it was the truth. And as we told it, then it would start showing the picture of the hospital. And ultimately when the puzzle was all, all the puzzle pieces were removed, all you saw was the truth about someone hospitals that they lie. Yeah. I like that a lot. Kind of a cool, uh, cool way that, you know, I, I, I don't know how to do the PowerPoints that way, but we have an attorney in our office, Jordan Logan, who's brilliant. And he's, he's really creative. I'm really creative. And so we come up and we just play with ideas and then he's able to execute them with animations and then on the PowerPoints. And then we have, uh, we use focus graphics for more detailed, like brain injury animations and those type of things. And then we integrate it all, which is kind of a cool, you know, it's like being a director of a play. You kind of have yeah. an idea and then you get the right people to execute it for you. Well, and it makes it really, you know, it, I, I love demonstratives. It's one of my favorite things about trial is coming up with, with demonstratives. But, you know, when you have a demonstrative like that, it makes it fun to give your closing and, and you know, put it together. Um, but um, but yeah, going back to your point of, uh, of credibility, I mean, we talk about the, that a lot on the show. And, uh, and we've said a number of times, I mean, just like you were saying, you know, um, plaintiffs don't get to fudge the facts. Plaintiffs don't get to lie uh, defendants do. And we've seen it done many times and we, and, you know, we make it a point to, you know, try to point out every time they do like you did, but uh, you know, I've seen good defense lawyers who just come in and they sprinkle facts all around, just hoping something is all going to stick in somebody's head and then cause a problem. Um, and create that confusion. I mean, one of the the issues that I, that I had in the opening, and again, that was without the benefit of visuals and and everything else without the benefit of Vordire, it's, it was very confusing to me, at least what the defense was saying medically was happening along that timeline. And maybe part of that's because it just doesn't add up what they were saying, but confusion among the jury works in their favor. Right. Well, right. I mean, I've always said this, you know, you don't have to be a great DA to get a lot of convictions. You don't have to be a very good attorney on the med mal defense side to win a lot of trials. Right. Because yeah. the reality is they're just damn hard cases for plaintiffs because there's an inherent bias in favor of doctors that people don't want to hold them accountable. Right. Yeah. And yeah. We understand that. And so um, and, and that technique of let's make it as confusing as possible. And, you know, what's interesting is in this case, because I was calling him out on all this nonsense. Right. I mean, we, we called him out on every single lie he said. So, like, appreciate our closing argument. We said, here's what they told you in opening. We showed that lawyer telling them what the evidence would be. And then we showed them the testimony from the trial. Like, were you able to show them that because uh, was CVN was recording it or because it was okay. I I didn't, it was that, you know, cause I actually tried a case uh, in New Jersey where the, the video was the official transcript and it was a high tech courtroom with cameras everywhere and their voice activated. Um, But I, I didn't realize, that you, but you could actually use those clips and then show them in your closing. Yeah, you know, this argument that people, the defense sometimes makes like, well, the video is not the official transcript. I'm like, judge, if they think the video somehow is not accurate to the transcript, I allow them to, you take my license if you think I was able to manipulate the video. 
Right. I'm like, right. but, but judge, here's the, the portions we're going to show and here's what the transcript says. And so the courts are usually pretty good with it. It's just kind of a nonsense. Like the judge basically told me, he goes, what's your objection? It's what they yeah. said. Whether yeah. they show it or they read it, I don't care. So, I mean, I think most judges are that way. I think most judges use their common sense with that. Um, obviously, I would love if more courts had better technology. It would make right. it on everybody. But courtroom view network is fantastic because you're able to get that information and then use it for your closings, which I love. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, day in the life videos, stuff for your website. The settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services uh, give them a try you know one of the things that i was thinking and you you did a uh, uh, made a great point of this and and we've used it before in some medical malpractice cases as well which was they were contesting whether or not she had a brain injury and whether or not it was caused by a lack of oxygen but at the same time they're caring for her and billing her uh, or an anoxic brain injury. And oh. so it, it just, you know, it is how do it, how do you think you can tell the jury that this isn't what happened yet? We're making money from the plaintiff based on saying exactly, you know, this exact thing. Right. Yeah. The hypocrisy was pretty thick. Right. I mean, the I I never understand why defense does what the defense does. But one thing that we really focus in on, and, and we do a lot of focus groups to figure this out, is what really is the emotional mover? What's going to move the verdict up or down? What is that emotional issue in the case that's going to get it moving? And we need to understand that in every one of our cases. And sometimes you know, everybody's like, okay, so I need to look for facts. I'm like, it may not be a fact at all. Maybe the way that they defended the case. And maybe they, they've raised frivolous defenses and it has nothing to do with what actually happened, but that may be the emotional item that's pushing the verdict, you know, but you need to understand what it is and you need to understand how to maximize it. And yeah. so you know, we were 
one of the firm we're working with, they've never done the process that we go through here, which is for like the trial we're doing now, we're on our fifth full-blown Vortire opening dress rehearsal uh, that we'll do tomorrow. And they've never seen this. And I'm like, well, it's kind of like making sausage. You know, the end product looks good, tastes good. And everybody's like, oh, that's, that's nice. But the reality is, is that at, you go through a lot of variations and, and trial and errors, figuring it out, what's going to work, what's not. And so people, you know, I'm sure, you know, Joe Freed, if you're there in Georgia, yeah, of course, great guy, great attorney. And Joe talks about these short trials or the speed trials. And I laugh because I'm like, I hear all the lazy attorneys going, Oh, I'm going to do that. I'm like, bullshit. <laughs> you have no idea how much work goes in to reducing down a trial. I mean, we've got 57 depositions in this case, I think 28,000 pages of records and the judge is giving us five and a half days for the plaintiff to put on their case, which includes opening, closing, and uh, openings and closings. So, yeah. you know, to be able to do that, you got to be able to cut it down. And so how do you do that? It's a lot of preparation. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it really makes you get through, get to the point really quick, you know, no build up, just, uh, just get them on and off. Right. And so, it, but it's the best way to do a trial, right? I mean, really, yeah. the way that the jurors now take information in is, is they expect witnesses to be 10 or 15 minutes. If you want to go a half hour, an hour with a witness, it better be full of like the most amazing testimony ever, or you're just wasting the jury's time. That's right. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, um, uh, I want to just touch on quickly because we've been talking a lot about this defense about whether she had a brain injury and, and, and things like that, you know, that, that her, well, you might be planning to get to this later, Steve, but her, her preexisting co conditions. Yeah, that's where I was going. Okay, go. <laughs> no, 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 you, you, no, you, no, you go, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, okay. Well, I, you know, so one of the arguments that they were basically saying is that, you know, to the extent she had a brain injury, then it was caused by her pre-existing conditions. I think she had diabetes, obviously had some heart issues because she had a pacemaker. And I think she had had breast cancer in the past. Uh, and, and then, of course, you were pointing out that three weeks before this event even happened, she's up in Alaska with her uh, husband and, and friends and, you know, going out and doing all kinds of stuff. So, you know, this so, you know, person who's going to be brain injured in three weeks just so happens to coincide with the exact time that they're treating her. But, um, but yeah, talk a little bit about that, about their defense on the, on the pre-existing conditions uh, and, um, you know, wh where they thought they were going with that and how you handled that. Yeah. And also this issue of this kind of sketchy uh, evaluation that a, a defense expert did. Oh, right. Yeah. 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 So they, for the first time ever in trial, they had their expert blurt out that our late, our client had suffered numerous strokes. And that's why she has a brain injury. And she's like, oh yeah, it's because of diabetes. You know, she has diabetes and then she has all these mini strokes and that's why you see the changes in the brain. And I mean, I don't, I don't get upset very often. I lost my shit during trial on that one. Uh, and the judge had to ask me to calm down. And I was like, Judge, he, there's no there's no indication that there's ever been a stroke. And the judge ultimately stepped in and admonished the witness not to have done that. And obviously gave the jury the instruction that there's no there's been no strokes. There's no medical record of strokes. Um, it was it was quite awful. I mean, it's fine. You want to argue diabetes? Fine. She has diabetes. 
But you know, they they what they did is they they would read parts of medical records. And I had a professor in law school that always used to tell me, read the next line, because therein lies the truth oftentimes. And, you know, they, in their opening, they said, oh, well, this doctor, this primary care doctor is going to come in and say that she had a history of memory issues. And then after this, after the event, she shows up to her doctor the first time and she's perfectly fine. Well, I talked to those doctors beforehand. They weren't deposed, but I talked to them. They're like, this lady didn't have a history of brain uh, memory issues before. And then after, the reason why I couldn't diagnose her is because she was so profoundly, uh, had such profound deficits, I couldn't even do an evaluation because she couldn't answer any of my questions. Now, could I have documented better? Sure. But I mean, anybody that's going to try to say that this lady's normal is lying to you. That's what their treating doctor says. He was really angry that the defense was trying to misuse her medical records to suggest that the patient was in a certain condition when she wasn't. It really, really bothered her. And that became one of the most powerful witnesses because she came in and she, and she basically said, they're lying to you. This lady has never been the same since this happened, period. And so, you know, you should get that real visceral betrayal that she felt that these lawyers are in here telling you something that they know is a lie. And everybody around knows it's a lie, but they want to try and trick you. And she was very, she, she, she pointed her finger at them and everything. She was wow. upset. That's great. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, they're, they're pointing to, at least from part of what I saw in, the, in their opening, they're pointing to a history of fatigue. And it's like, this is a woman who, as you pointed out, mother, grandmother, who couldn't remember her kids' names. Yeah. You know, the idea of comparing that to her previous complaints of fatigue is so gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, this the, the, the attorneys for the defense were some of the most dishonest attorneys I've ever, ever been up against. And I have no problem saying it because everything that came out of their mouth, they lied to the court all day long before we got to trial. They lied to the jury in opening. I mean, that's just... And it blew me away and I'm glad that they got held accountable. You know, I mean, I, I, I think they may have lost the client. I don't know. I, I do know that the attorney who litigated the case up until trial until the Chicago attorney came in from their main office to try the case. Uh, she was, uh, it no longer works at that office. Yeah. And it, it just makes you, you know, just from, uh, a trial strategy standpoint, when you're defending a case, it, I mean, pick your pick your strongest points and go after those and concede where you need to, because it's it, it's going to make your case stronger. I mean, if you fight on everything and, I, and that, that was the next place I was going to go is this issue of the of the life care plans. You had a life care planner that basically came up with a um, that it was going to cost about seven point eight million dollars to care for Alyssa for the rest of her life. Their life care planner you know, after taking in a bunch of assumptions on, on what was caused by what came up with a life care plan that was $5,900. Right. I mean, wh why bring a life care plan that's going to be so off? I mean, it just, it, 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 it just really uh, makes you wonder what they were thinking. Well, I dared them to bring that life care in my opening. I said, right. I hope you get a, they didn't bring that life. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> 
Um, you know, the other thing that I dared them, as I said, you know, there was this guy, Dr. Amos. And I said, I can't wait for y'all to see what this guy did. Right. And that's all I did. I kind of left it there. And the reason is, is we found out is that if you, if you do this in your opening and you leave a teaser, right. That becomes the whole focus. The jury is just waiting for that moment because you've now teased them. They're like, I got to hear this Amos guy. I got to hear this guy Amos. And so uh, we, we ripped him limb to limb with the help of Dorothy Clay Sims, who assisted us greatly in the preparation of the questioning of that witness. Uh, Dorothy is anybody that's listening. If you haven't used Dorothy on your cases for doctors, you should seriously consider using her. Yeah, especially in traumatic brain injury cases. That's where she really uh, oh, shines. So, yeah. So they did bring Dr. Amos? Yeah, they brought Dr. Amos. Uh, he didn't do well. Uh, he had given the Fulstein mini mental exam to my client. We had a new law passed, a new rule that allows us to record the examinations so that we know what the hell is going on. And so this one was audio recorded. Knowing he was being audio recorded, this is a shocking thing, is knowing he's being audio recorded, he still gave the exam completely wrong and made <laughs> shit up completely. It is, if you ever go on to CBN and want to watch a way to dismantle an expert, look at Dr. Amos's cross. And I literally just, the entire cross was, I just walked him right through the full scene mini mental exam. I said, okay, let's talk about it. I mean, he used the score sheet that tells you what you're supposed to do. And then he does it differently. Each and every time. He was like, what city are we in? Or what state are we in? And she's like, Las Vegas? Oh, good. I'm going to give you a point for that. I'm like, what? No, it's Nevada. What? No. That's the wrong answer. <laughs> right. And then, like, one of the questions was, write a complete sentence. And she wrote the. And then he's like, well, do you want to write something else? So prompting her to get more right, she goes, it was like the man over there. And the, the instructions say there needs to be a subject and a verb to be a complete sentence, right? I mean, that's, and we had a couple teachers on our jury, which this was hysterical. Yeah. So I looked at the doctor. I'm so doctor, you gave her a point for that. Can I go, can you, there's some teachers in the, on the jury. You want to explain to them where the verb is? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, well, maybe there's not, maybe there's not, but I gave her a point anyway. I'm like, you gave her a point for that being a complete sentence. Yeah. And so it just, and it just got more and more absurd as you went through it. And then ultimately it culminated in the fact that he said he was a full blown uh, faculty of neurology at David Geffen school of medicine at UCLA. And so we just went on the website and pulled it up and said, can you explain to the jury why your name doesn't pop up as a professor? <laughs> At the med school? <laughs> no. And he was like, uh, I can't, I don't know. I I'm I go, no, you're you're affiliated with UCLA hospitals. You're not a professor. Right. I go, does it make you feel better to make up fake accolades? <laughs> <laughs> so the guy's a real, a real peach. And I didn't realize it at the time, but apparently this guy's caused a lot of attorneys in California a lot of headaches over the years has been pretty effective. Right. Right. But it's why you got to know the medicine, right? I mean, if you, 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 if you want to 
if you want to play, especially in Med Mal, if you want to play in that arena, you better surround yourself with people that really know the medicine or you yourself better really know it because if not, you can get yourself into a little bit of trouble. Right. And start yeah. trying to talk around you. Um, well, I, let's uh, back up and talk about the liability case uh, a little bit because we had we kind of went past that to start off the podcast. Um, but talk about, uh, you know, basically the differences between, you know, what y- you were saying. I mean, y- to listen to the defense um, explain what happened in the in the room basically made it seem like, well, this is something that happens from time to time. They handled it just like they do which is, you know, you push fluids, you, you know, push the uh, ephedrine. They, they said that the uh, anesthesiologist did check the, um, did check the, the pulse, even though the, the cardiologist had said, you know, has anybody checked the pulse and got silence? Um, and, and then I, th- I thought it was interesting that they were trying to claim that the cardiologist was the captain of the ship and that the anesthesiologist was just following his lead which, you know, it, it, in any any lawyer who does these cases knows that when you've got a surgeon and a um, anesthesiologist, the person who's responsible for maintaining the vital signs and watching the vital signs is the anesthesiologist. Right. Uh, the surgeon focuses on the surgery. I mean, that's what right. they're there for. Um, yeah. But but talk about talk talk about, you know, you you know, the differences between the two of you and how you address that. So so the. We, we had great evidence here. I mean, the, all the medical records we knew when we tried this case, we tried this case on three medical records. That's it. It was a whole case. And one was the EKG strips. One was the uh, cath lab time timestamp record. So we had the timeline there. And then one was proof of the brain injury, right? Um, those were the three that would really matter. There more came in because the way the defense was trying to make stuff up with records. So we'd introduce the full record let the jury see it. But those were the three key records. So what, what the defense was trying to do, they wanted to move the timeline, right? The, and, and the timeline being the time that the oxygen saturation went below 95% to the time that they started CPR. Because she started a, 95 may or may not be relevant to all to your case out there. But if your patient starts at 100% oxygen saturation and drops 5%, you've got a, a situation that needs to be attended to. It goes down under 90 you've got an emergency okay? right it's it's like they they always talk about it. it's you got to look at the baseline so right. if your person comes in with a 90 or a 92 then maybe a 90 is okay but right. if they come in with a 99 100 well then a 92 90 is bad i mean it's really bad real bad yeah. and so they were trying to shift the timeline and try to say well it wasn't until they want to say a you don't really have to even think about it until it gets under 90 and then at, at under 90, you know, we, they're trying to suggest that they were just making stuff up. There was no evidence of what they were saying at all. They were just making it up. And, and what happened is we had to address the timeline. We had to make timeline was we knew from our focus groups, we got to win the timeline battle because if they move this timeline, it's going to hurt us. Um, and the other thing that they needed to do is they knew that they had to put all the blame on the cardiologist because the cardiologist settled with us before trial. Um, he was actually really remorseful. This guy, he's like, it's one of the few times in a med mal case, this doctor felt really bad that this lady got messed up. And he had, uh, I, I would allow this guy to work on me because I believe his heart, you know, the mistake happened. It wasn't his mistake. He was operating in the pocket, but people around him screwed up, but he had sincere, uh, and I didn't want that, 
for the jury to consider because I felt that like his sincerity of his remorse and his repentance was real. Um, the anesthesiologist settled with us like the day before trial or two days before trial. He was a, a buddy of mine who does plaintiff work is friends with them. And he was trying to get me to settle. I'm like, listen, this guy really screwed up, yeah. you know? And so we had to decide that, but we, we ultimately made the decision. And there's some people out there um, that will suggest that you should never settle some defendants out and have an empty chair. Well, there, there, there's no rule in law that I have found yet that there's not an exception to. There's always, as we're doing trials, but you do your focus groups and you find out who who's taking the hits. And that's what you need to find out. In this particular case, we knew we weren't going to, the we, we got a stencil agency on the anesthesiologist. So I think I could, it's free money. I take the money from him. It doesn't cost me anything. They're ostensibly responsible for him. The cardiologist, I lost the stensible agency on. So that was a true empty chair. But I knew the way he would come across because we had his deposition and we focused his deposition testimony and the jury wasn't never going to blame him. They just weren't right. going to blame that guy because he was truly sorry. And so it was kind of a perfect situation for me to get rid of all the doctors and just focus on the uh, nurses and the, the facility. One, one question. Uh, I didn't mean to talk over you, Yvonne. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say the cardiologist, just from reading it, of course, part of this is a, you know what the situation is when you're going into the trial, but he really did come across sometimes as like the only adult in the room who was checking out like, hey, anybody take a pulse? Anyone? Right. 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 Well, and he's the last guy. That's not his job in that room. His job is to make sure that the procedure goes well and that the, the pocket in which they're they're dealing with the pacemaker is safe and that it works and that, that the patient is ultimately going to be okay. That you had an anesthesiologist, two nurses that were there to assist. The, the There was a scrub tech who was assisting the cardiologist. Everybody else was there for the anesthesiologist to make sure the patient was airway was clear and that vitals were okay. Everybody screwed up. And the reality, what happened is they didn't have any audible alarms. I think they all got distracted. They're jerking around. They just, this is so normal. They do this. So they, these cath labs do thousands of these procedures a year. Right. So this is just another one. This is like, they're going to do five that day. Right. You know, and they're just going through the motions and it's human nature to go through the motions, but that's why you have the alarms and they had all the audible alarms turned off. Mm. And they're like, well, there's a visual alarm. I'm like, yeah, well, the problem is the cardiologist said if there had been an audible alarm, he would have heard it while he was in the pocket and he would have looked up and done something. But for that, and that's where we, the timeline, everything's shaped up really well with that testimony. And, and, and I was worried, right? I mean, you're always worried that a doctor's remorseful in order to settle and then comes in and just screws you over. This doctor was authentic. He, he was truly sorry. And I, and I gotta tell you, it actually went a long ways for the family to heal that the doctor was able yeah. to say, I'm really sorry. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. 
Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Well, we live in a society as was on full display last night where Human decency is gone. It is a rare thing. Um, and it's an interesting world we live in. But, you know, uh, I've spoken with David Ball on uh, several occasions addressing Robert Tyson of Tyson Mendes. He wrote a book called Nuclear Verdicts. And he talks about what the defense should be doing. How do, how do you prevent big verdicts, right? And so David Ball and I've talked about this numerous times. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that Tyson says is, oh, well, yeah, the defense should take responsibility for something, even if they don't admit liability. And that's fake repentance, this nonsense, right? That's exactly the problem is that, like, dude, how about if you made the mistake, just own it? Right. But they can't do that. For whatever the reason, they just don't want to do that. But you know, the, the, that's the problem with our society as a whole is that when mistakes get made, it's always a cover up because, oh, that we don't want to have to pay it. We don't want to be responsible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's an all or nothing for them because, you know, it, as, as, as much of a pain, I'm sure this case was to try against people who are literally fighting on everything that's, it, it, you know, going to drive the jury to oh, yeah. give a, a damages award like $150 million. Yeah. Uh, so at the end was, of the day, you're, you're happy. I mean, but, it, but it, it can be painful while you're going through it. I hate the process. Yeah. You know, especially in discovery where they're just lying. They're being obstructive. I mean, it is, it is the most frustrating thing, I think, for any good lawyer out there that's ethical to deal with unethical lawyers on the other side. Because the reality is courts don't ever, very rarely, I won't say ever, but very rarely do they hold those attorneys accountable. So that behavior gets rewarded. Yeah. I mean, we literally, I have a case right now where we've got a pending motion for sanctions because they destroyed the server. They destroyed the emails, all this critical information that shows like critical things happening. They, they destroyed it. They, they've now admitted they destroyed it. And they've already been sanctioned by this court numerous times for discovery violations. Well, they filed all these motions for summary judgment and a bunch of them got granted. 
So I guess it was worth it, right? Right, right. I mean, the 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 $50,000 in attorney's fees was helped. That was well worth it if you could win on some motions for summary judgment. And I just, I, I bring that example up because I think it's one of those things that, you know, I always encourage judges. I'm like, look, you, just because somebody's polite doesn't mean what they do is ethical. Yeah. Some of the most unethical lawyers I know, when they go into court, they're always polite. And you just want to rip their throat out. And you're like, you're such a fraud. Yeah. Because what you do is not nice. Right. Well, and that the other thing, too, is, you know, when you have these motions for for sanctions for when evidence has been spoliated or, you know, obstructive discovery or even when you don't have a motion for sanctions and it's just, um, you know, having to fight all these frivolous defenses, um, it's really hard on the clients like we as lawyers, it's frustrating but we're kind of used to it. We know that this is the game we're playing. And, but, you know, one of the things that the court, that's not really part of the analysis when the court's really imposing damages, is just how hard it is for the clients to hear defenses like that their loved one is not brain injured or to hear that the video that they might have of their loved one's last moments or whatever is just gone because somebody destroyed it. I mean, yeah. that's, that's hard on us. It's so frustrating for us, but it's so hard on, our clients and so hard to explain to them why there might never be consequences for it. Right. Well, that's, that's our job, right? I mean, we've got to find a way to educate the judge and then ultimately get that information and the truth to the jury that, Hey, you would have had these documents, but for this conduct, they destroyed it. What, why, why do you think that is? You yeah. know? So, I mean, it takes, it takes judges to have a little bit more, uh, courage and, and I, you know, the, the judge that's handling this right now, I really have been impressed with. I think he'll do the right thing. Um, but, you know, it's, it is frustrating. I mean, dealing with lawyers that treat the discovery process as a who, how much can we not produce, but it shouldn't yeah. surprise anybody. I mean, DRI has been teaching defense attorneys for years that when motions or requests for production documents go out, object to everything. Don't give anything. Yeah. And only 20% of plaintiff lawyers will even file, send a letter and do a motion to compel. Right. And then if you then in response, do a heavily redacted production. And then only 20% of those lawyers left will do something. So now you're at 4%. And then, and then what you do is you do a privilege log. And then there's like, you know, you only end up having to produce everything to maybe one out of 20 to 30 attorneys. Yeah. So 29 out of 30 attorneys don't ever get all the documents that they've requested. And they're telling you they have them. They're just not giving them to you. Right. 29 right. out of 30. Think about that. So No, it, it's absolutely right. I mean, you have to be willing to do the work. And, and you know, when you take on a client, you have, and, and I hate to say it, but I mean, the reason why the, the, you know, defendants and defense lawyers get away with it is because it's a lot of work to hold them accountable and to, um, you know, get all of the documents you need. And if they need to be sanctioned to do the work in order to get them sanctioned, because, you know, it, uh, when you when you get a judge to a place where they think that a defendant needs to be sanctioned, it's usually not on the first motion for sanction. It might be on the third or fourth motion for right. sanction until they finally say, OK, I get it. There's enough games being played here. Something needs to happen. Um, but you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it's it, for the most part, the playing the percentages, it works for them. Right. And I mean, you know, that that's the issue that we, we all as plaintiff 
lawyers, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves, do we have too many cases? Do I have too many cases to be effective? Um, our firm has a, a pretty good ratio. We, we average about six cases per attorney. Um, now we've got about 15 attorneys now, but uh, we don't ever overload any attorney because how can you do your job? Right. If you have, I mean, we just hired an, an attorney that was at another firm. He was working on 60 litigation cases. And mm-hmm. I just laughed. I'm like, no, you weren't. Which four were we actually working on? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. What, what are the 56 of them that you're just leaving to a paralegal and hoping she doesn't screw it up? Yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, it's just the math, the, the time, the math on the time doesn't work. Right. I mean, there, the, if you're going to work up a case correctly, it requires you to be all in. And to me, you're either all in or you're all out. And if you can't be all in, then you should give the case to someone else. They yeah. can be all in. Yeah. So. Um, well, I, I wanted to go back uh, to the Silas case for for a little bit. Is um, you were talking about the ostensible agency argument, and I and I noticed that was a big part of your argument. But I also saw that you had a negligent credentialing claim, yeah. and I was wondering, did you go to trial with the negligent credentialing claim, or was that sort of a uh, uh, not as not as upfront. Oh no, we did. Uh, we fought tooth and nail. Um, I believe that that was an issue for the jury. I know the facts of it came in loud and clear. So when we had requested the credentialing files, so we have the benefit at my firm. We have two two of our partners that do MedMal with me did defense work for a combined twenty eight years. Um, and they've represented doctors and hospitals. So they understand credentialing better than anybody I know. And so we had requested their entire credentialing file. We had also obtained and requested the credentialing policy and procedure. So what was supposed to be looked at, what was supposed to be done, and then you compare what they gave you compared to what the policy requires. And this, this will happen in almost all your cases, by the way. They'll never actually give you the full credentialing file. They'll withhold stuff from you. They won't do a privilege log. They'll just say, this is the file, hoping that nobody will read it or understand what's in it. But if you get the policy and procedure of what they're supposed to do to credential and compare to what they gave you and just accept and say, that's fine. Just, I want to make sure this is the complete credentialing file, right? You're the 30B6. I mean, this is everything, right? And this is the whole thing. Yep. That's it. Okay, great. Thank you. And it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, uh, uh, it's a very, nobody, thinks it's a big deal deposition, but it becomes a massive deal because the 30B6 just confirmed that this document is the entire file. And oh, by the way, it's missing 90% of what it should have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so we were able to take the chairs because, uh, and this is the same probably in most hospitals, but the, the chairs of the departments are, are real jobs. You're really supposed to do stuff as a chair and they don't ever do it. They just take the title and whatever and get some cool appointments at the hospital, make some extra money, but they don't actually do any work. And so we put the chairs of cardiology and anesthesiology on the stand and they both came across as bad as you would think they would. Yeah. I saw you mentioning that they didn't even know the basic policies and procedures. And I was shocked when the cardiologist, I think the head of cardiology said, you, you asked him, how long can you, when you're giving CPR, how long can you take a break for? And I think you said five minutes. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> and then when you look at the uh, heart association's guidelines, it's like 10 seconds. It's right. Like, right. Five yeah. minutes. What kind of cardiologist are you? 
I'm like, he goes, yeah, up to five minutes, this should be fine. I'm like, okay, dude, I, it's shocking that people in your hospital are having uh, cardiova- cardiovascular episodes right. with, with your understanding of basic CPR. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, what, one other question I had, because it looked to me, you you talked in your opening about the, an investigative file oh, that you were able to get. I was hoping you were yeah. going to ask about this. Because uh, so in, in it looked like the head of the cardiac uh, the cardiac cardiac uh, cath lab was doing an investigation, which in Georgia would normally be considered peer review, and is there's a complete ban. You you can't get anything that's considered peer review. So right. I'm just wondering, what's the law in Nevada, and and where, did you have to do anything special to get that file? Oh yeah, there was a huge fight over it. Okay, uh, but. The, the the reality is is and, and the, the the whole point was she said she did an investigation. That's what she said. Well, we asked everybody that was involved. Did she ever talk to you? Did she ever interview you? No, 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 no. I'm like, I, I, we went to the judge. Like, judge, how is it peer reviewed if she didn't talk to anybody? Right. That's a good point. Like, what's in her? What What did she do? And she claimed she talked to everybody. So her argument was everybody's wrong but me. And so, uh, yeah, this investigative file was the lack of investigative file. They, they, they tried to raise some peer review nonsense. I mean, we, we were fighting this the entire trial. I mean, this was, you're right. I mean, this is even in Nevada, it's the same thing. It's off limits. But what's not off limits, there's things about the peer review. Who, who was there? Right. That's not, that's not privileged. What were the conclusions? That's privileged. But, you know, the, the topics that were discussed aren't even privileged. It's what their conclusions are. Right. So there, there, there's some, you can get some stuff, but some judges don't even let you know what was on the agenda. There, there's even a case in Georgia where it talks about that you can't even know whether or not it happened. I mean, which, you, you know, and you always have to fight about it. I mean, and sometimes it depends on the judge you get. Sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. Um, but yeah, um, and you're, but supposed to, you're supposed to be to know the facts, but that's really pretty much all you can know is the fact. Right. It, it, but it's a fight you have to have in every med mal case. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you're going to, you, you know, in every single case, you're going to line up and you're going to have that fight. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to ask is, so it, it, it seemed to me from reading the openings that the, the, the biggest part of the fight, and as you've already talked about, was over the timeline and, and you know, whether they did the appropriate uh, CPR resuscitation. I was just wondering how much of the case was relying on this issue of, of the propofol overdose? It wasn't a whole lot because that that was just more to show that the anesthesiologist was sloppy. And th- what, what happened, the reason why that became more relevant to us in our story was that he left, he gave this propofol and he left the bedside, just like the doctor did to Michael Jackson. Right. And so she, she overdoses and he's not there by the bedside. Now he wasn't very far away. He was just in the monitoring room, but there was two distinct lies that were made. One was that, the he was telling the truth about this one is that he had to go in the other room to monitor in order to take more frequent uh, vitals. The hospital argued that there was a different button that he could hit inside the cath lab that didn't require him to go into the monitor room. And n- none of the actual people in the cath lab have ever heard of that. That was just a story they made up to tell the jury. 
So I wanted to point that. That was the first lie that we exposed in the trial, which was kind of interesting. So that's why the propofol was a, a bigger deal. The other reason is because um, the he testified that he routinely gives propofol and leaves the bedside. And when we talked to the chair of anesthesiology, you're we like, well, what would you say if a doctor was giving propofol and routinely left the bedside? She goes, that would never happen. I would know if that happened. That's not okay. That never happens. I'm like, really? I'm like, cause there's a group of people sitting right there in the jury box that have heard a different <laughs> thing during this trial. What do you say to them? That one of your doctors that you're supposed to oversee and that you're credentialing is routinely doing that. Well, of course, at that point, it doesn't matter what she says. No. Right. I mean, and so that's why the propofol, you know, we, we, we knew it fit into the story because it started the overdose. But the reality is, had they done their job, they would have brought her back quickly. And yeah. they would have just been like, well, that sucked. But, you know, she's fine. Yeah. You know, she wouldn't have a brain injury. So, um, the, the, you know, we talk about this a lot and in, in brain injury cases, you obviously, uh, see it a lot, but you, you didn't have the client in the courtroom and, um, and I'm wondering, um, did you have her, did you bring her in at all just to, so the jury could see her? And then did you, ha did uh, Edgar testify and how did, how did he do? Yeah. So we, we introduced, they were there for more hours. So they got introduced and then they left. And then we were going to have, so Edgar has to watch his wife 24 seven. Um, and so when he was coming to testify, he would bring a friend that could sit with her during the trial. Well, we had brought him in to testify in an afternoon and he was nervous, obviously about testifying and he forgot to bring her extra diapers while she pooped herself in the courtroom. He tells our team, like, I got to take her home. She pooped herself. I'm so sorry. I don't have an extra diaper. And it was this terrible thing. And we didn't want the jury to know because we didn't want it to look like a stunt. And so I went up to the judge. I'm like, judge, can we just take a recess? And so the judge, we took a recess. They laughed at the recess and, and did not come back. And then the following day, he showed up and she was there and his daughter was there. And they had, you know, so she sat in the courtroom those two times. Um, Edgar's testimony was beautiful. It was just so authentic and, and anybody that's been married to their love of their life would feel the, the, the pain and the sorrow and the guilt that he feels that this lady that was my partner, that I love, that used to do everything, you know, he basically said, look, she used to carry a lot of weight around the house. Now she is a lot of weight. And he was going to say something mean. And I actually said to the daughter and the mom, I said, I told him, get them out of here. I said, hold on, Edgar. And I didn't want, I didn't, I, she probably wouldn't remember it anyways, but I didn't ever want her to hear this. And I said, take them outside. And he goes, look, she's a burden. She's a heavy, heavy burden now. I love her. I'm never going to leave her. But every day he goes, you know, you think about just the little things in life, like, we talk about, you know, just driving down the street. We'll drive by something. We'll start laughing like, oh, you remember that time? She can't even remember our honeymoon. Yeah. She doesn't remember our kids' names. Every day, it's the same question. We wake up. She goes, what's for breakfast? What are we eating today? That's the only thing she asks all day. What are we eating? It's like, we just ate. Oh, what are we eating? And it's just the same thing all day. 
And it's just this sad thing. And it's just your heart broke. And it was weird during one of the parts of the trial, the daughter came in and testified. I was not supposed to take this witness because I knew emotionally I couldn't take this daughter because it just was too close to me for personal reasons that I couldn't take that person. And my the attorney that was supposed to do it's like, I, I can't, I, I'm not ready. I'm like, what do you mean you're not ready? Okay, fine. I'll take it. Well, I ended up taking the witness and I didn't cry, but I had to ask the court for time in between witnesses. And I was going from that witness to uh, the chair of uh, cardiology. And I said, judge court's indulgence. Can I please have five minutes? He goes, we're not taking a recess, but go take some time. I'm like, okay. And so I literally went into the, I called an ante room, just a side room. And I just had to like, let it out. Say, okay. You know, it was the weirdest thing because I'm going from this like super sensitive, sad moment to I'm going to rip your head off. Right. <laughs> right. And you had to make that. And I couldn't, I like, I couldn't get myself there. And I just, cause I was looking at him like, you don't even care what you did to this family. Right. Ruin this family's life. You took away her mom. You don't care. And it just made me like, I was just like that, that emotional range. I had to like, just, I had to come back to center. Yeah. So it was kind of a weird, it was a weird thing in a trial. I've never had it before, but it was like, it, it was real. And it was, you know, they thought I, I mean, it was nice because my co-counsel thought I forgot something for the next witness. So that's what everybody thought is that I had to go grab something out of this room. Cause that's where we kept all of our boxes. And, right. Yeah. So I did. I she goes, just make sure you bring something back in. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I brought something back in. I don't even know. <laughs> wow. Um, well, well, Sean, this has been really good and just a great case. Is there anything that we haven't talked about about the Sales uh, versus Summerlin Hospital uh, case um, that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard? Well, I, I think one of the main things is you really, you know, I spent a lot of time getting to know the clients, um, getting to understand w- what it meant for them. Uh, they were a very religious family. They were very involved with their church. Um, and so when you get to know them, it makes it more personal. And I think it allows you to be a little more um, real with the jury when you're talking mm-hmm. about damages. I know a lot of people talk about this, but it is important. And, you know, I, I didn't go into their home. I didn't have dinner with them, but we spent a lot of time talking and, and, and just spending time together I and mean, probably like 20 hours. Yeah. Or I just wanted to get to know the family. And I spent a lot of time with the daughters and their friends. And we really spent the time to get to understand how this impacted them. So I think that's important. Um, overall, I mean, look, uh, you know, Med mal cases are tough, but I, they're probably right up there with my favorite cases to do. I love med mal. Um, yeah. I love products cases, but med mal is fun. I mean, it, especially because the one big thing that I hope everybody understands is that when you try these med mal cases, you need to look at the system failure. You know, what, what went wrong within the hospital system? We had a great expert, um, Jonathan Burroughs, who's a hospital administrator, he was fantastic. He's out of like Vermont or something like that on the East Coast. But what a great expert. 
who he comes in and he really helps you understand the systematic failures that allowed this to happen because nothing actually, these events that happen to your clients at these hospitals don't happen in a vacuum. Right. Right. Like there, if you go back and, and look, the jury cares, the jury really does care. When was the first in time that this could have been prevented? And if you understand that and you can figure out, okay, this is when this could have all been stopped. Um, then this would, the jury wants to know that. And that's where the, a lot of the blame ends up getting placed. And if the first in time with the hospital having a better system, it's a good thing for you. Cause it's a yeah. lot easier to get mad at a hospital that's owned by wall street than a doctor who lives down the street. Yeah. Well, and I, and I will say that that uh, resonates with jurors uh, a lot more because I think anybody who's spent any time in a hospital or been with a loved one in the hospital, you know, goes through the feeling of, you know, is anybody really paying attention to what's going on with my, you know, and, and, and most of it is not, the, you know, a lot of times not the specific caretakers. It's because either they're overloaded with work or, you know, they're, they're sending in so many different people who aren't communicating with each other. They tried some new system and nobody's talking with each other and nobody's really, you know, watching what's going on with the patient. And I think that a lot of, um, a lot of jurors have really seen that. And, and, you know, over the past, you know, 15 or so years, um, in my view, at least here in Georgia, medical malpractice cases have been changing. And, um, and part of it is because of this systemic failure um, that I think a lot of, a lot of uh, jurors uh, identify with and, uh, and understand that um, you can get lost in the system and you can get lost in the lack of communication that goes on with, the, with, with these hospitals that are more corporate hospitals and, and more about making money than they are about patient care. Yeah. And, well, and look, I, I've got a lot of cases in Gwinnett County, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Uh, so we're going to be litigating a lot of cases up there. Our bellwether case is the one that's down in Santa Fe, but we've got a whole, I think we have 15 of them in Georgia that we're going to be coming up to do. So, I mean, it, you know, these all matter. I mean, the, 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 every one of the cases we do matters and it's going to make it better for the next person that goes into the facility. We can't necessarily take away the harm that was done to our client, but we can make sure it doesn't happen to the next person with the right verdict. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, well, Sean, this has been just a, a great interview. We've really enjoyed it. And um, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Sean Claggett of Claggett & Sykes, uh, in, who based out of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And you can look up Sean at uh, claggettlaw.com. That's C-L-A-G-G-E-T-T-Law.com. And we've been talking about the Solace versus uh, Summerlin Hospital and Medical Center case that was tried in September of last year. Um, Sean, we've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Thanks for having me. This is really cool. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. 
Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>